Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of page 924. The sages of the Kabbalah have agreed with him, as is explained in Padres of Rabbi Moshe Corovero, of blessed memory. There are a number of Torah sages who sharply disagree with Maimonides' view. They claim that no descriptive term may be applied to God, not even that of, of knowledge, and not even of a form of knowledge so rarefied that it is completely beyond the realm of human experience. To say that God is the knower and the knowledge and so on, so the argument runs, is to give infinite God a description which would serve to limit him. According to Kabbalah, however, Maimonides is indeed correct. However, as stated in the Alta Rebbe's note in part 1, chapter 2, and later on in his note in chapter 9, this is only after the Ein Self light has undergone numerous sentiments until it is able to guard itself in the vessels of the Seferit of Chachma, Bina, and Dat of the world of Atzilla. At that stage in Atzilla, we can truly say that God is the knower and known, etc., inasmuch as the attributes of Atzilla are completely united with the Ein Self light. Okay. The, uh there's a classical argument amongst the Maimonides and the Maral of Prague, Rabbi Yehuda Levoi. Maimonides speaks about the, God's knowledge and he asks how, if a person has freedom of, how if God knows everything that will happen, how does a person have freedom of choice? God knows the future, so you already have no choice. And he, understand, he explains that God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. Our human knowledge, you can separate the person, the, uh, the ability to know, and the, and the knowing. Um, these are three separate components. You can have one without the other. There are people who go through life and never acquire knowledge. Um, he, you have three, three separate components that externally come together. Through knowledge, you combine what's known with it through the knowledge, the person. So the person suddenly is enriched with the knowledge and then it becomes connected. So within a human being, these three components are separate. Within God, they're inseparable because God knows himself. By knowing himself, he knows everything and knows everything that will happen. He knows everything that is. He knows everything that's going. He's aware of everything, aware down to the smallest amoeba, is aware of the tiniest creature. Is aware of everything that's going on in the whole universe, but it's a, not an external knowledge, it's a knowledge that comes from himself. He knows himself, by knowing himself, he knows everything. And he says, this is very difficult for a person to imagine or picture, understand, it's impossible for us to fully understand, but even to imagine, to picture, it's possible, but it's very, very difficult for us to appreciate, appreciate this type of knowledge. And the morale argues very sharply with Maimonides. He says that um, how can you define God as the knowing, the knower? How can you define God as knowledge? God is undefined. You can't define God as knowledge. Knowledge is a description. Knowledge is in itself a limitation. Knowledge is not, is not emotions, is not love. So how can you call God, God is knowledge? 
God and his knowledge and what he knows is all one and the same. God is above knowledge. And um, this really takes us back to the difference how Maimonides, the classical understanding of God is, the philosophical understanding and the Kabbalistic understanding of creation. The classical, class, classical understanding of creation, the way Maimonides describes it, the way the Jewish philosophers describe it, is just like the creative person. The creative person expresses himself through his creativity. He expresses himself and reveals himself in his works. He reveals himself in his creative work. So too, the world, this world is really, it, God expresses his creativity. God expresses his brilliance. God expresses his wisdom. We see this wisdom in everything of creation. There's so much wisdom. There's so much wisdom in every small thing. It's laws, it's science, the way it's made, the way it preserves itself, the way it survives. In the whole of science, it's just spent to study and to, to, to discover the layers and layers of brilliance and wisdom that goes into everything, everything that exists. Every organ in the body has so much wisdom to it, the way it's created and then the way it functions and how it interacts with others and the tiniest bug, this wisdom, how it was put together and how it works and how it defends itself and how it takes care of itself. There's tremendous wisdom. So everything in this world is a reflection of the creator, of God's creative ability, of God's wisdom, infinite wisdom. So creation is really self-expression, and God expressed himself. That is the classical understanding of creation. The Kabbalistic understanding of creation, however, is completely different. Creation is not about self-expression. Creation is about self-forgetfulness. It's forgetting about yourself. Because God is infinite. And there's no room for anything but God. God overwhelms any other presence. There is no other presence. There's no room for anything but God. God is infinite. There's no space empty of God. So how could there be creation? Creation is a result of God hiding himself, of tzimtzum. God had to hide himself. It's not so much self-expression, it's self-forgetfulness. It's God, so to speak, forgot about himself. And when he forgets about himself, he makes room for us. He removes himself, so to speak. And he makes room for us. He creates a space for us. He hides, we can't see him, we don't sense him, we don't feel him. And within this empty space, he enables us. All of creation enables us to come into being. So creation is not so much self-expression, on the contrary. Creation is a result of self-forgetfulness. Hashem has to hide and forget about himself. And therefore, from this perspective, the difference between these two perspectives, Maimonides' perspective, the highest attribute to Maimonides, the greatest attribute, the most godly attribute to Maimonides is pure intellect. Like God is perfect intellect. Pure intellect. Perfect intellect. An intellect that we cannot even begin to comprehend. An intellect where the knower and the intellect and the knowing is all one and inseparable. God and his intellect are one. And what he knows is one. And this is beyond our comprehension. But God is perfect intellect. And God 
expressed himself in this world, we find infinite wisdom in everything that God creates. Because it has a, it has a, a piece of God in it. This is the classical understanding, philosophical understanding of God. The Kabbalistic understanding of God is it's the opposite. You can't call God intellect because that's a definition. It's not enough to say that God is infinite. He has infinite intellect. His mind is perfect. Infinite intelligence. Because intelligence is defined. Being infinite intelligence or infinite love or infinite compassion is still a definition. You're defining God as love. You're defining God as intelligence. It's too limiting. God is undefined. You can't define God. God is not only infinite, unlimited, God is beyond definition, beyond description. The moment you start describing God, it's already not God. There's no name for God. Because how do you define God? A name describes, defines a description. There's a name for kindness, there's a name for compassion, there's a name for strength. There's a name for different defined attributes. But there is no name for something that has that undefined. How do you define it? How do you describe it? There's no definition, there's no description. I have no name for it. There's no word for it. There's no word to capture God. There's no name that can define God, that can describe God. Because God is beyond definition and description. So to call God as being intellect, perfect, although perfect intellect is still, is still, it's not accurate because God is not intellect. And that's why the Maral says, he says, God is called, referred to as HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One. We don't say the HaSeichel, the perfect intellect. We don't call God the Seichel. We call God Kadosh, holy, holy. What's the definition of holy? Holy means it's separate. Something that's infinite, something that's undefined, something that's beyond, beyond us, something that's transcendent, something that's beyond definition and beyond description. He said, and therefore, because God is infinite, because God is, transcends all definitions and descriptions, therefore, God contains everything. Because if you were to limit God and you would say that God doesn't know or doesn't see or doesn't hear or doesn't love or doesn't, then you're, you're limiting God. God is so undefined, He's truly undefined, truly unlimited, therefore He incorporates everything. He includes everything. There's nothing outside of Him. You can't say that God doesn't know. Because that, that itself is a definition. That itself is a limitation. You're saying God is everywhere except in the world of knowledge. <clears throat> because God is truly undefined, therefore He contains everything, He can do everything. He's truly unlimited. He can reach everywhere and He, can, he contains everything. Therefore He contains knowledge, He contains intellect, He contains love, He contains compassion. But you can't call God love or infinite love or infinite compassion or infinite wisdom or knowledge because God is... Kaddish. God is transcendent. God is holy. God is beyond any definition and description. God is infinite. As a matter of fact, in order for God to create the world, God had to hide. Had to totally withdraw Himself. Had to totally, so to speak, remove Himself. To create an empty space that appears empty, that enables us to exist and to emerge. And it's only in this empty space that God was able to emanate from Himself. 
<clears throat> the ten attributes, the svirat, we talk of the divine wisdom, the divine understanding, the divine knowledge, divine love, divine compassion, divine strength, and we have names for these. Kael is divine love, Elohim is divine strength, Hashem is divine, Yudke Vavke is divine compassion, Tzavakos is God's competitiveness, when he does battle with evil, and does battle with his enemies, and Shakai is Yisod, and, and, and Adnai is Malchut, is royalty. So there's a name for every single Sviraf, every single attribute through which God expresses himself. So God emanated from within himself these expressions. But these expressions are called the Ten Svirot. They're divine attributes. And yet at the same time, we just said that God is infinite. God is beyond definition. Not only infinite, God is undefined. God transcends any definition, any description, any name. So how do we reconcile that with the fact that we talk of God's ten sfirot, ten divine attributes, which are very, very defined? Chachma is wisdom and not bina. Bina is understanding and not wisdom. That is knowledge and not love. Love and yet the, we have divine names for these attributes. These are God's attributes. God's love, infinite love. God's infinite wisdom, divine wisdom, divine knowledge, divine providence. So how do we reconcile the two? On one hand, it appears that the morale is correct. His understanding is correct, that God is undefined, God is not only infinite, that God is unlimited, God is undefined. We have no name for God, God is only called HaKadosh. The Holy One. He transcends any definition, any description. On the other hand, we do talk of God's attributes. Maimonides is right. We do talk of God's attributes. We talk of God's wisdom. We talk of God's love. So God does have attributes that emanate from Him. So how do you reconcile the two? And he says that they're both right. The Maral is right. You know, in the classical Jewish way, you're both right. How could you both be right? Because although, just like God creates the physical world, God has to create, so to speak, wisdom. He has to create knowledge, the idea, that, the idea of knowledge. He has to create love, because it doesn't, it's not within God. God is undefined. God is not love. God is not wisdom. God is not knowledge. God is none, none of these attributes. So yes, he has to almost create it. And all it is, is like, it's like a tool in the, hand, in the hand of the builder. Just like when God does something, so too when God knows, He just created knowledge, and it's just a tool that He's using. And He remains unaffected by it. Just like the builder is unaffected by the axe that He's holding in His hand, and with His axe He can do many different things. He remains unchanged, unaffected. It's just, a, it's just action that He's taking with is holding the axe and taking action. So too, when God knows and God loves and wisdom, God creates all these defined attributes. It's a creation. Because within God there is no attributes, There's no, there, there are no definitions, there are no descriptions. God transcends wisdom, love, and, and, and that's the difference in Judaism and all other religions. Christianity, God is love. Perfect love, that's God. In other religions, God is perfect meditation, perfect mind-expanding mind experience, perfect mind. In Judaism, 
God is faith. HaKadosh Baruch God is transcendent. God defined, is undefined. He's beyond all these definitions and descriptions. So for God to emanate from within himself, to emanate all of these attributes, is almost like a creation, something from nothing. It's not the essence of God. The essence of God transcends all of these definitions and descriptions. And yet there's a difference. These are divine attributes. They are divine names, holy names. We talk of God's infinite wisdom. God's infinite love, God's infinite compassion, God's infinite strength, and God's infinite royalty. So how do we reconcile the two? So the Magid, Rabbi Dov Ber, gives a beautiful analogy. What you're saying, he says that, imagine Einstein wants to play with his little baby. He wants to play with his little baby. No. What's he going to do? He's going to take his little baby in his lap and start explaining to him his theory of relativity. The poor baby will start crying. So what does he do? He has to communicate. He has to communicate on the level of the baby. So he gets on all four and he starts ooing the baby and eyeing the baby and playing horsey with the baby. And, and the baby is giggling and laughing. They're having a fabulous conversation. He's speaking the language of the baby. The baby understands exactly what his father is telling him. And they're communicating. And they're connecting. Now, <laughs> is this what Einstein is? I mean, it's like, think about it. Einstein is on the floor. If someone walked into the room and saw Einstein on the floor playing with the baby and acting like a baby and, and the horsing around, and, you know, this is not, this is not you. Even while he's horsing around, he still remains Einstein. He hasn't changed. He hasn't suddenly become a baby. He still remains who he is. But he's, he's putting himself down to the level of the child. But who's communicating to the child? It's none other than Einstein. Einstein's communicating to the child. He's taking himself and putting it into this ooing and eyeing and this cooing and this, and this child's play. But it's him that's bringing himself into that level. And the child, they're, they're, they're communicating fabulously. They're having a great time. The father, the son, the son, the kids, the baby is laughing and having time of life. Because the father is speaking his language. See, so he says, so too. God, out of his, in his infinite wisdom, his infinite love for us, undivided, wants to communicate with us. How is he going to communicate with us? We're finite beings. We're limited. Our whole frame of reference is meaningless to God. Our whole frame of reference, wisdom, love, and knowledge, compassion, I mean, all of the definitions that define all the human definitions and descriptions, time, space, concepts, attributes, emotions, intellect, all of these definitions and descriptions are nothing to God. It's to God, it's less than a drop of the ocean in comparison to the ocean. How much is a drop of the ocean in comparison to the ocean? Does the ocean even notice the drop of, of the ocean? No. But yet, the ocean is made up of drops, many drops. If you, if you take too many drops, ultimately it's made up of a certain amount of drops. So although the ocean doesn't even notice a drop of the ocean, but nevertheless a drop of the ocean has some relation to the ocean. But to God, all of the emotion, all of the attributes, all of the tense we wrote, and all of the definitions and descriptions, to God is less than a drop of the ocean to the ocean. God is HaKadosh Baruch He truly transcends it's like the finite to the infinite. A million is not one iota closer to infinity than one. 
There's no connection. There's no relation. It's a whole different realm. It's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different world. So to God, the whole, this whole language, this whole frame of reference, this whole world doesn't exist. It means nothing. God totally transcends it. So how can we communicate with God? How can we relate to God? We would have no way of communicating and relating with God. So God, out of His infinite mercy, acts like, speaks baby language, basically, basically, concentrates Himself. And starts ooing and eyeing and cooing, and now, okay, now we, He speaks a language that we can relate to. We talk of God's wisdom and God's brilliance and God's mind and awareness and knowledge and God's love and God's strength and His compassion and His overcoming, fighting His enemies and endurance and, and royalty and connection. Now we can, we can relate to God. But not that for one moment it's God. God transcends all of this. But it is God who concentrates himself into this baby language. So we can talk of divine attributes. It's not like the axe in the hands of the builder. The axe in the hands of the builder. The axe has no connection to the builder. The axe is separate from the builder. But here God concentrates himself into these attributes. It emanates from God. They become divine attributes. God's wisdom. God's love. God's royalty. So it's like, like Einstein playing, cooing and eyeing. Of course it's baby too, but who is cooing and eyeing? It's Einstein. With everything that Einstein is, it's him that's concentrating himself and communicating in this childish level. But it's him. I'm not dealing here with... I'm dealing with a baby. I'm dealing here with, with the real person. So too, it's God's infinite self, undefined self, that's concentrating himself, so to speak within this divine attributes. So of course, but at the same time, God is not wisdom, God is not love, God is not compassion. Not for one moment should I confuse that. That's, that's idolatry. That's, all these religions are idolatry. If you say that God is love and God is, is, is the mind, that's idolatry. God is not love and God is not mind. God is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He's undefined. The only way we can grasp God is through Emunah, through faith. And Munap simple faith, the faith that every Jew has in Neshama, the Jewish Neshama, that's born with this faith, this, na- this inherent faith, innate faith. Maminim, b'nei maminim, with the believers, the children of the believers. We inherit this holy faith. We have a holy soul because we are connected with the holiness of Hashem, the transcendence of Hashem. God is beyond, even beyond being infinite. He's undefined. We have no words to describe Him. We have no, nothing to approach Him. But this very same God, emanates from within himself these ten attributes. And he reveals himself through these ten attributes. And he communicates with us through these ten attributes. So through these ten attributes, I am grasping God. The analogy is, it's like someone gives you a finger, yeah? You pull his finger. You're not just pulling his finger, pulling his hand. When, you, when the whole body goes with the hand. And the soul goes with the hand. When I pull the finger, I'm getting his heart, his mind, the soul that's in the heart and the mind, his will, his pleasure. I'm getting him. It's not the finger that I'm grabbing. That's the analogy of the human body. The human body, that's the difference between the axe and the hands of the builder and the human body to the soul. The human body is not external to the soul. The axe is external to the, to the builder. But the human body is not external to the soul. The human body becomes one with the soul, inseparable from the soul. This, the human body becomes a vehicle for the soul. What do I see when I look at the human body? I don't see the body. I see the soul. If I would only see the body, I would see a corpse. A live body is just conveys the soul. That's all it is. The body, you don't even feel the body. The body doesn't even feel itself. The body is unselfconscious. A healthy person doesn't even sense himself. A healthy person has light. 
Because the body is nothing other, it just conveys the soul. It's almost as if it's not here. It's just, it's the soul. You want to you lift your hand, your hand, you want to go somewhere, your body automatically moves. You want to eat, your body automatically swallows. You know how difficult it is to swallow? God forbid people who have difficulty swallowing. It takes years and years to train your muscles. How many muscles are involved with swallowing? The simplest act that we take for granted. People go through their entire life not even thinking what happens when they speak. You know how difficult it is to speak? God forbid children who are challenged or people who have an accident and they have to learn how to speak again. It's years and years of extremely hard training. You think playing violin is difficult? Using your mouth and your lips to, to, to pronounce letters properly, it's, it's unbelievable. And yet, yet we don't even think about it. Most people go through the whole life, don't even realize what they're doing. They say bays, vo-va, they don't even realize that in order to make a bays, your lips have to touch. They don't even pay attention. It's unselfconscious. Your, your, your soul wants to speak and your body just automatically speaks. Because your body is nothing. Your body is just a vehicle, a conveyance for the soul. That's all it is. So too, the ten divine attributes are like a body to God. Inseparable from God. Of course, the soul is not the body. But the body has become inseparable and totally united with the soul that it just becomes a vehicle for the soul, an expression of the soul. So too, these ten divine attributes become a vehicle, a vessel for the infinite, for the undefined, that they... It's like God is concentrated and reveals Himself through these very, lim- very, under- very defined attributes, infinite attributes, but defined attributes. That's how we reconcile the two opinions of Maimonides and the Maral of Prague, that yes, God Himself is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. God Himself transcends knowledge. You can't even say that God and His wisdom and His knowledge are one. God is not knowledge. God is not even infinite knowledge. Even the type of knowledge that Maimonides is describing with the knowledge and the knower and the known is all inseparable and one which that blows our mind. Even that is beyond our concept. As we discussed the other week, it's, a, it's an unselfconscious type of knowledge. It's, it's, it's a knowledge that comes from the core, from the essence. It's like words and letters that, that are etched in the stone. It's like etched from within you. But even, even that, to define God as knowledge is already, is already uh, off because God is, you can't define God as knowledge. On the other hand, Maimonides is correct. We could speak of God and His will, wisdom and His knowledge as being one because God does emanate from within Himself knowledge and He reveals Himself through the knowledge. He communicates through the knowledge. And he, although the knowledge is a creation, something from nothing, but it's, it's not a creation that's separate from God. It emanates from God and God concentrates Himself through these attributes and reveals Himself through these attributes and they become inseparable from God. So we can speak genuinely speak about God's knowledge. It's God's infinite knowledge. It's God's infinite love. And all the ten sefirot, the ten emanations, are divine attributes. And we can use names to describe them. Kale, Elohim, Yudke Vavke, all the, Hebrew, all the names of God. Holy names. Because these are names that are, de- that are defining different attributes of God, but they're defining God. God, how He concentrates Himself and reveals Himself through these attributes. That's why... It says a human being is called Adam. Why is a human being called Adam? Because we are created in the image of God. Adam el Elyon. We are created in the image of God. So much so, the Medrash says that when God created the world and created Adam, it says the angels thought he was God. They wanted to bow down before. And Adam told them, don't bow down. I'm just a creature. I'm just a creation. I'm just a creature. Bow down to, to God. What's so impressive about man that the angels wanted to bow down to him? Angels wanted to bow down to what? I mean, after all, we are finite. We are limited. 
So it says, just like God has ten spherot, the ten divine attributes, so too man has ten basic attributes. We have the brain is basically divided into three parts. We have the right brain, the creative brain, the creative mind. We have the left brain, the analytical mind. We have the integrative mind, the brain in the back, which is the decisive mind, decision-making mind. It's very rare to find a person who's fully developed in all three. We're lucky if we're developed in one. There are people who have very creative but don't, don't appreciate themselves what they have created. Many creative people um, uh, never, you know, never, like, what's America called? America's called, Columbus died in jail. And America's called after Mariego. Columbus had no idea of what he had discovered. It took someone else to take his creativity and go to town with it, and he gets all the credit. So it's, it's, and then you have people who don't have a single, uh, a single creative bone in their body, but when they see or hear something creative, they go to town with it and they develop it. That's an analytical skill. It's a whole different skill. Then you have people who are decisive. Many brilliant people are very indecisive. They can see two sides for every argument. They can argue every side. As a doctor asks the patient, do you have problems making decisions? And he says, well, yes or no. You know. <laughs> You can, and then you have a person, a leader, someone who can make decisions, a different quality, someone who, can, who has a crystal clear sense of, of the issue, is able to really get to the core of the issue and able to, to internalize it and to make a decision. That's, that's, that's to integrate the knowledge, to personalize it. It's a whole, a whole different quality. That's maturity. It's a whole different quality. Many brilliant people are very mature. It's a whole different... And then you have love. You have the heart. You have the basic emotions of the heart. You have love. And then you have attraction. And you have uh, strength and, or being repulsed. Um, certain things you love and certain things you, you, you're, you're disgusted by. And, that, and that's what defines you. Defines you as the things that you love or the things that anger you, the things that you hate or the things that you're repulsed by. And then you have compassion. Rachmanut. And then you have the expressions. You have competitive drive, the ambition. Like the right foot, the competitiveness, <clears throat> ambition, drive. That, that's a result of the love. Something you love, you want to pursue and you want to go after. And then you have endurance, discipline, certain endurance, the quality of people to persevere. Persevere over difficulties, persevere, perseverance, don't give up. It's a quiet, subtle thing because it's a long-term thing. People are very competitive and trap indoors get bored very quickly. They're, they're good to start companies, but the moment they start, they bore quickly and they have to leave. They can't develop a company. They can't sustain it. They're, you know, they're good creative and they need that creative challenge and that competitiveness and that overcome, but they can't. It takes a whole different discipline, subtle discipline, quiet discipline to create, to do the boring work, to create the infrastructure and to persevere and to be organized. It's a whole different, uh, different energy. You know? And that's like the left leg. And then you have idea of, of connection, charisma, connection, um, the personal bond, and then you have the expression, communication, the results, the bottom line, bringing it into, into reality, thought, speech, action, effectively uh, communicating it and bringing it, bring it into reality, selling it. So these are all the attributes that man has. Why do we have ten attributes? Because God has ten attributes. We are created in the image of God, so we are a reflection of God. That's why you have a minion. Because ten represents the ingredients with which God created the world. God created the world with his ten attributes. That's why everything in this world has 
is made up of ten attributes. Everything in this world has wisdom. God creates the world with wisdom. Wisdom is one of the ingredients with which God creates the world. Everything, everything that is created has a wisdom to it. And all the other attributes. So, why did the angels want to bow down to men? After all, it's only ten. Ten is limited. It's not even infinite. Not only are they defined, each one of them are highly, highly defined, but it's only ten, it's not eleven. How could they confuse man as being angels? How could they confuse man as being God and they wanted to bow down to him? Because when they looked at man, yes, we're only ten. But what's unique about us is that these ten are all interrelated, interconnected. Man is the only creature in the whole universe who is a microcosm of the whole universe. Everything else is one-dimensional. Animals are one-dimensional. You have animals that are kind, the eagle. You have animals that are cruel, the raven. They will always react in that way. They're programmed. They can't choose right. You're right. They can't choose. They don't have the freedom of choice to choose something other. And also angels. You have angels who are love, the embodiment of love, angelic love. But all they can do is love. You have angels who are fiery, intense, laser, powerful. But all they can do is express that sense of awe, that sense of... That's all they can do. So they're one dimension. Man is the only creature in the universe who's multidimensional. We have choice. Because you can choose... You have like the full palette of colors right in front of you. And you can choose... This color, you can choose that color, you can choose this emotion, you can choose that emotion. You're not programmed. You don't have to respond in a certain way. You can choose to respond in a way that goes against your nature. You can choose to act. You can choose, let me do something interesting, let me experiment. Why they always have to respond in a predictable way? Let me respond in an unpredictable way. Let me pretend that I'm someone else or someone, I'm going I'm to act in a way that's totally opposite to my nature. An evil, wick, wicked person could choose, you know, today let me act like a tzaddik. Let me pretend I'm a tzaddik. Let me act. Let me pretend and let me put myself in someone else's shoes. And let me, let me be them for a moment. Let me try to act in a different way than I would. Let me read a newspaper that I hate, that I will never pick up in my lifetime because I can't stand anything they write. It just makes my blood boil. But let me, let me read one day. Let me read. You know, that's flexibility. That choice that we have, no one else has. Because we are a kaleidoscope of everything that exists. We have within us a full range, from one extreme to the other. We're not just intellect, we have emotion. We're not just emotion, we're action. We're not just action and emotion, we have will, we have pleasure. And within emotion itself, we have the full range of emotion. We have love, we have hate. We have kindness and we have the opposite. So the fact that within one soul, there should be such a full range, such a kaleidoscope of so many extremes and so many opposites and such a diversity, spiritual and physical and intellect and emotion and all of this within together and within emotion itself from one extreme to the other, the interrelation, the interconnection, it's only because the whole must be greater than the sum total of its part. Man is not just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's not just linear. Man is, the whole is greater, is dynamic, is vibrant. 
It's the interrelation and interconnection of all of these ten. And the fact, the flexibility that we have, that one contains the other. The fact that we can express kindness by borrowing the opposite. You express kindness by being tough, tough love. How do parents express kindness to their children? By being tough in them. It's the ultimate expression of kindness. You really care about your child? Be tough in them. Be disciplined. Create healthy boundaries. Teach them no. So externally, I'm borrowing something that's the opposite of my nature. I'm borrowing... It hurts the parents to discipline the child. It hurts the parents more than it hurts the child. It's painful. It's inconvenient. But it's the ultimate expression of love. It's because I love them, that's why I'm going to borrow. I'm going to act as if I'm angry. I'm going to act. But what's behind all of it, the motivation is love. So it's this interrelation, interconnection, this total flexibility. It's because it's one whole organism. Man is not just a composite, a machine that's made up of different pieces. The whole is greater than the sum total part. The whole is dynamic, is vibrant, and it contains everything. Just like, just like the living organism of a tree. There are millions of, uh, there's so many parts to a tree. There's the roots and the bark and the branches and the twigs. And the, and the, but the tree is this one living organism that expresses itself in all these diverse organs. To use another analogy, if you look at a painting from a master, and you put right next to it a painting made by an amateur, but one that was copied exactly. Put a paper over the painting and copied the painting exactly. Put the two paintings side by side. Everyone will be able to tell. One is a master and one is a dud. What's the difference? If it has all the lines, it has all the external lines, it has all the shapes, it has... It's a copy, a perfect copy. The feeling isn't there. Ah, Because a master, what makes a master a master? A master has a burning vision in his soul. He sees something. His soul is on fire. And he pours that vision out on paper. It comes out in thousands of details and colors and shades. But it's not about the colors and the shades and the details. It's about this single vision that he has that expresses itself in thousands of colors. That's why it's alive. It's not about the technical. You don't see the technicality. You see what's within. You see through it. The technicality is just conveying the soul. While the technician, the amateur is just a technician, is a mechanic. He's just building blocks. He's putting together one line and another line. But all the building blocks of the world can, doesn't equal a soul. One soul contains all the building blocks in the world, but all the building blocks in the world does not equal a soul. Because a soul is not made up, it's not a machine, it's not made up of components of pieces, you know, and you don't arrive at a soul. All the scientists in the world can't create the life of a fly. Soul is something from within. Soul is not anything external mechanical body, it's something from within. And when there's a soul, the soul expresses itself in the body in all the details. And that's true of every living organism. And you can see that life in the painting. The master put a soul in the painting. You don't, you don't see, it's not the technical. That's the difference between, let's say, a storyteller. When he tells a story, it's like a life. It's not the detail. The details, it's vivid. While someone who's technical and mechanical and give you all the detail, but it's dead, it's flat. What's the difference? All the components are there, but there's no soul. And all the components does not equal the soul. While the soul contains with it all the components. The soul is perfect, the soul contains with it everything. And so too, a human soul, 
The whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. The fact that a person is ten, but not just ten, a diversity of ten, a collection of opposites, intellect, emotion, practical, within, within intellect itself, within emotion itself, from one extreme to the next. And it's all contained, it all emanates from one soul. That one soul can contain so many opposites. Obviously the soul is not intellect, the soul is not emotion. The soul, the, soul, the whole is greater than some total of its parts. It's, a, it's a one indivisible whole entity that's dynamic, that's vibrant, that contains within it and expresses itself through all of these parts. So when they saw man, they saw Adam, who was a reflection of God, they thought he is God. Because there's nothing like it in the universe. Angels are one-dimensional. Creatures, animals are one-dimensional. Everything in the world is one-dimensional. The only one who's not one-dimensional is God and any human being. Because we're created in the image of God. So too, the ten spherot, although it's ten and not nine, and ten and not eleven, it's a limited number, and each of these are highly defined. Yes, it's infinite intellect, it's infinite emotion, but it's, 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 it's defined, it's intellect, not emotion. But the fact that they're all together... And the fact that they're all interrelated and interconnected is because the whole, it's not about being ten. It's about the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. Because God is undefined, that's why He's able to express Himself in these attributes. So because God is undefined, that's why He contains these attributes. That's why He's able to express Himself in these attributes. And... But these attributes are, are, and these attributes are inseparable from God. And therefore they're called divine emanations. Divine, we speak of divine wisdom, divine love, divine compassion, divine royalty, divine attributes. And through these divine attributes, God is now able to communicate with us. Now we're able to connect with God. Because we can relate to it. We know of love, so we talk of God's love and God's infinite love. So we have some way, some language we can communicate with God. We're in the same wavelength. The Torah speaks the language of man. Because God, out of His infinite love for us, just like Einstein wants to, wants to play with his child, so he becomes a baby. Einstein never changes, doesn't become a baby. But the same Einstein himself expresses himself in the, in the language of the baby, and the baby is and having, a, having a, great, uh, a great time communicating. So God, out of His infinite love for us, concentrated Himself in these emotional attributes, in these intellectual attributes, in the idea of knowledge. But then the knowledge becomes, it's His knowledge. God and His knowledge are one and inseparable. Just like the body is inseparable from the soul, knowledge becomes a body to God. It becomes God's knowledge. The infinite God contains in His knowledge, expresses Himself through the knowledge, so God knows. God loves. God's royalty. And that's how we reconcile the two. Maimonides is right, and the morale of Pragmatism is right. God himself, of course, remains transcendent. He's above all these definitions. And the physical analogy that the Kabbalists give, it's like you take water. Take water. Water has no color. Then pour the water in a red glass, in a, in a blue glass, in an orange glass. What do you see? Orange water. Orange water. Blue water. And it's real. I, I do see yellow water and blue water and all these different colors. But the water remains unchanged. It's not like the water suddenly turned blue or the water suddenly, suddenly turned yellow. So too, 
it's God's infinite light that expresses itself through knowledge, love, all these divine attributes. So it's not that suddenly God became knowledge. God became love. God is undefined. God transcends knowledge. God is HaKadosh Baruch God is infinite and undefined. But nevertheless, it's God who is revealing himself and concentrating himself through the attribute of love. So it's God's love. And God's love. Through the vessel. Right. So it's a vessel. It is a vessel. It, it, yeah, it is a vessel. It becomes like a vessel to God. But it's not like a vessel that's separate from God. It's like the body is a vessel to the soul. It becomes inseparable from the soul. So the divine attributes become inseparable. They become, all they are is just to convey God. So, so really it becomes inseparable from God. Of course the soul is not the body. But the body becomes, a ve- all it is is a vehicle and, and it just conveys the soul. Nothing more. Nothing else. The body is totally unselfconscious of itself. It's like the light and there's many colors, the prayers. Many colors, but it's only one light. Exactly. So God doesn't change. He remains unaffected. Just like the light remains unchanged, unaffected. But at the same time, the effect of the light is based on the prism, right? Based on the vessel. Just like when the hand, with the hand, you want to move. So it's the soul that's moving the hand. So whatever the hand does, the soul remains unaffected, unchanged. With the hand, I can do many things. I can hold an axe with the hand. I can chop a knife. I can, I can use a knife. and I can, I, can, I can do many things. With my finger, I can type in a typer, but it's but the soul remains unaffected. It's the soul's ability to move the hand that's moving the hand. But I can do a thousand different things, a thousand and one things with the hand. But it's really it's one. It's the soul. It the difference is depends on the vessel. It depends what the hand wants to do, what the hand is doing. But the soul remains unchanged and unaffected. So yes, so it all it all depends on the vessel. So one of the vessels is knowledge. That's like a vessel. So when God creates knowledge and emanates knowledge from himself, we can speak of God knowing, but it's God who knows. It, the knowledge becomes inseparable from God. It's God's knowledge. It's divine knowledge. It's not like human knowledge or even angelic knowledge, which is created knowledge, which is separate from God. But this, this we talk about divine knowledge. It's God's knowledge. So Maimonides is right, and Maral is right. You're right, and you're right, and you're both right. All three are right. The one, Maimonides, who says that God and His wisdom are inseparable, right? Maralu says that, God forbid, you can't talk about God as wisdom, God is beyond wisdom. And the one who says that, how could you both be right? You're both right. All three are right. Because God on His own transcends, is holy, transcends any definition. But on the other hand, we do speak of God and His divine attributes. And the answer is that through the tzimtzum, God concentrates Himself. Out of His infinite love for us, God emanates from within himself these ten attributes and he expresses himself and reveals himself through these ten attributes and then these ten attributes become an expression of God so God does reveal himself through the tzimtzum through the concentration he does reveal himself so on one hand it's not, an exp- it's not self-expression creation is not self-expression in that sense the morale is correct creation came about through tzimtzum God had to hide himself in order to create if God revealed Himself, creation would not be possible. In order to create the world, Bereshit bara, it's not that God was an artist and He expressed His artistic genius and His creativity. In order for creation to happen, God had to hide Himself, remove Himself. And only then could He create an empty space when it's self-forgetfulness. When God forgets about Himself, then He enables creation to happen. 
And this is the whole foundation of creation, like we learned earlier. The whole foundation of creation is communication. Because God wanted to have a relationship. God wanted to get married. Marriage begins the moment you end. The moment you forget about yourself, that's when marriage begins. As long as you don't forget about yourself, there's no room for marriage. There's no room for anyone else. I fill up my whole space. My whole world is filled. There's no room for anyone but me. Marriage is the moment you forget about yourself. The moment you become a half. And you totally forget about yourself. And where do you find yourself? In someone else. You remove yourself, totally forget about yourself, and you see yourself from someone else. Find yourself from someone else. How do you become whole? When you become a half. You become whole, the other person makes you whole. And that's the whole foundation of communication. That's the whole foundation of this world. Of the marketplace, business. Who makes you successful? You make yourself successful? A person who thinks he makes himself successful will not be successful in business. The whole success of business is who makes you successful? The customer. The customer is always right. Like the story where the, uh, the owner sees the clerk who's arguing with the customer. He runs over, he pulls him aside, says, how many times did I tell you the customer is always right? Why are you arguing with the customer? He says, well, boss, you don't understand. The customer insists that he's wrong. <laughs> So it begins when you forget about yourself. The moment you forget about yourself and you put yourself in the customer's shoes and that's, the customer makes you successful. So all of life is based on not yourself, forgetting about yourself, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. How does someone else see it? The author wants the audience to buy his book. He doesn't just want to be creative. He wants the audience to... He wants to be able to communicate. He wants the audience to buy it, to understand it, to absorb it, to receive it, to welcome it. The musician wants the audience. He wants the applause. He wants the audience to appreciate. He wants the feedback. So this is the most central part of, this is what makes life happen. It's all about communication. It's all about forgetting about yourself. Where does this come from? Because that, that and the source. That's how God created the world. Creation happened because God forgot about himself. Symptom. When God forgot about himself, so to speak, and created an empty space, a space that's empty of him, so to speak, and enabled us to come into existence, a, an entity that feels separate, an egotistical entity, a self-conscious entity, and that then he wants to see himself through our eyes. He wants himself to be reflected from our eyes. He wants us to receive him. He wants us to welcome him willingly with our freedom of choice. To willingly choose him and want him and want an enter to relationship. He wants to be a king, not a dictator. He wants to be married. He doesn't want to impose himself on us. He wants us to willingly want to have this relationship. Two-way street. So the whole foundation of creation of existence is self, self-forgetfulness, not self-creativity. Because if it's all about self, 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 there's no room for anyone else. Then the other person is just a prop. The other person is just a prop for me to express icing on the cake. For me to express my perfection, I need someone else. That's not a relationship. That's me, myself, and I. The other person is a nice prop. There are marriages that are like that. that that's not a good marriage. That's not a healthy marriage. Those are not marriages that last. The other person is, is a nice, you know, it's a nice self-expression. It's a nice thing for me to show off or for me to have. 
to be perfect. I'm so perfect, I want to add to that perfection. That's not marriage. Marriage is when you're not perfect. When I'm only a half. I will never be perfect. I need the other person. The other person is the only one who can make me whole. Just like the king. The king cannot be king. The only one who can make him king is the outsider, the subject. The king needs the subject. The king is nothing without the subject. I am not married without the other person. Without the other person, I am nothing. God is not king without us. He needs us. We're not just icing on the cake. It's not just about self-expression and we're just, we're just a nice prop for God to play with and to express himself with. No, God really needs us. God begs us. This week's Parsha. Chazak, we finish the third book, the central book in the Torah. Im. The Talmudic rabbis say, God, please with us. Please, do me a favor. I need you. I need your mitzvah. I need your heartfelt mitzvah. I need, I need, because if you don't do it, then I'm not a king. My destiny is in your hands. I need you. This is not a game. This is not a, just, what difference does it make? God is perfect. He doesn't need us. It's for our sake. That's a childish understanding of what's going on. That's such a superficial understanding of what's going on here. God begs with us, I need you. Without you, I am not king. So creation is not self-expression, it's self-forgetfulness. And this became the whole foundation of the Hasidic movement. The Baal Shem Tev taught that a Jew who just lives for himself, if, my Yiddish, if it's all about me, myself, and I, even if it's in holiness and Jewishness, but it's about my growth, my spiritual advancement, my share in the world to come. Somebody's like, you know, you. I want to observe God in the way that I'm comfortable, or the way that makes sense to me. Otherwise, it's, it's for me, it's either this or nothing. I mean, many a person like this who tells me that I observe God in my own way, <clears throat> the other stuff's the whole background. That, that's exactly, that's the difference between religion and Judaism. Religion is, what can God do for me? Lord, get me high. That's religion. Judaism is about a marriage, a relationship. In marriage, it's not what can my spouse do for me. It's forget about yourself. What does my spouse need? You buy a flowers for your spouse. You probably couldn't care less about flowers. But it's not about me. It's about her. But doesn't the thought count? No, it's about her. When you're taking her out on her anniversary or her birthday, you're taking her out to a restaurant, you don't go to your favorite restaurant. You go to her favorite restaurant. It's not about you. That's the whole difference. Religion is about self-actualization, self-realization. That's ego, selfish, spiritual selfishness. Meditation, spirituality is the ultimate ego trip. So God doesn't appreciate that whatsoever? I don't care. If God tells me, don't turn on a light on Shabbos, I don't know why. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. For some reason, I don't know why. God cares if I turn on a light. You know, I'm a marriage. It's a marriage. God, you care? I'm doing it for you. That's the difference. Judaism is not about me. When someone says, I'll do, you know, I feel like lighting a candle Wednesday night. You know, I'm going skiing Friday. <laughs> Let me turn Wednesday night into Shabbos. I'll sit and I'll meditate. Nothing happens. What? It's been done. Okay, nothing happens. It means nothing. That's, that's, not, that's, that's not Yiddishkeit. The whole point of Yiddishkeit is forget about yourself. It's not about me. It's a marriage, a relationship. 
Hashem says, do something for me. I need something for you. And that's all that matters. What, what do you need? That's the whole difference. That just highlights the whole essence of what Judaism is all about. But what about the argument that the person who doesn't feel any kind of connection, if they don't do it that way, they, they, then they come up with these new schemes, which, which happened through history, about alternative ways to worship God? Well, that's the difference. Well, I, the, the problem is, they had the mitzvah, they were exposed to commandment, but they missed the punchline. You can go through your whole life, imagine telling a joke and missing a punchline. You can go through your whole life knowing that a mitzvah is a commandment, and feeling that you must, and it's, it's, you, you know, it's feeling like shoved down your throat, but forgetting that a mitzvah, the root of the word mitzvah, comes from the word seventh connection, link. And the analogy is, we discussed this once, imagine Einstein living in your building, and you come home tonight, and there's a message in your answering machine. It says, Bruce, by the way, you've been living in the building for 30 years, he never once said hello to you. Not because... Not because he's anti-so, he's just living, he doesn't say hello to his family, he's in a different world. And it bothers you a little, but you know, you understand, he's in a different, different universe, he's like in a world apart. And then he leaves a message to you. You come home late tonight, he says, Bruce, do me a favor. I'm working on my unified theory of the universe. I'm very thirsty, <laughs> please get me a glass of seltzer. I ran out of seltzer. I mean, you, you would be, Einstein, call, he knows my name, it's firstly. I can do something for him. You would run to every Korean grocery that's open. You would find them as, as you know, you'd be telling your children and grandchildren about it, you know. And, and you know what? In America, you would probably publish a book also, Einstein and I. <laughs> My experiences with Einstein, you know, what happened one night? I, what, what happened here exactly? Why, why did you get so excited? What, what happened? What do you mean? Einstein spoke to me. There's a connection. I can do something for it. Multiply that infinite times. The distance from Einstein and us. Multiply that, the difference between God and us. And at Mount Sinai, Har Sinai, God turned to us and said, not one thing. He says, there's 613 things you can do for me. And he turns to every individual Jew. The Ten Commandments are given in the single. And every Jewish soul was present. Every one of us. We stood there. He says, Binyamin. Sarah, Ben and whoever you are, I'm talking to you. No, in the Hebrew name. Yamin. He says, do me a favor. Put on tefillin. I don't care what he wants. I don't care if it's a glass of seltzer, if God would ask me to chop wood. I would do it with the same enthusiasm. It's not the point. The, diff- the, the details don't matter. It's a connection. I can do something for God. God knows me. I can do something for this guy. But if, if you realize that, you jump from joy. What do you think our parents did mitzvot for 3,800 years? Every Jew that's alive today. Every single Jew that's alive today, no matter how assimilated they are. The only reason they're alive as Jews is because our ancestors, for thousands of years without any interruption, did the Torah mitzvot with joy and with passion. Every single Jew that's alive today, because we come from those Jews who for 3,800 years without a single interruption, did not stop doing mitzvah, despite inquisitions, holocausts, pogroms, exiles. And we did it passionately, with enthusiasm, with excitement, because it's a link, it's a connection with God. So unfortunately, there were those Jews who did not have this education. All they got was this oppressiveness, guilt. You better do it, or the smack in the face, or the tweak of the ear. But they never exposed to chasidut. They never studied the Tanya. They never got the soul of Torah. So you can go through your whole life telling a joke and never hearing a punchline. 
There's no laughter, there's no joy, there's no fun, there's no excitement. You re- a mitzvah is a commandment, you must. But you don't realize a mitzvah is a connection. When you have the soul of the mitzvah, you realize it's a relationship. Most Jews don't even know that Judaism is a marriage. It's a relationship. The whole idea of the chosen people, what's the chosen people? That people have no idea what it's all about. And people have such the, the hardest time understanding the chosen people. How dare the Jews say the chosen people? 12 million Jews and we are the chosen people. 6 billion people and cultures and civilizations and we are the chosen people. What does the chosen mean? God chose us to be his marriage partner. He chose us to be his wife. And we're all guilty of the same crime. We choose one person to the exclusion of everyone else. We're going to be intimate with one person and we take them out of circulation. Our, are our friends angry at us? No, they're happy for us. They become the best man, the best woman at the wedding. There's no problem if you understand what chosen is. People have no problem with it. The non-Jew is God's best friend. Noah. God spoke to Noah. He's a prophet. He single-handedly saved the whole world. He was a righteous Gentile. He was, he was a special person. Every human being is a miniature Noah. Every human being is created in the image of God. That's why Jews don't try to proselytize. You don't have to be Jewish to be connected with God. You can be God's best friend. But a Jew's relationship to God is a whole different story. It's a marriage. It's a relationship. It's a whole different... It's intimate. It's a whole different ballgame. And every time you do a mitzvah, you're strengthening that relationship. And within marriage, whatever you do, there's no ulterior motive. You don't make a calculation, not about scoring points. You know, I'm going to take out the garbage if you do this. You know, it's not, it's not about scoring points. You do it because you do it. And you know what? What's, what's the reward of, 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 in a marriage? What's the greatest reward? The fact that you're strengthening the marriage. That's the reward. I don't need any ulterior motive. And what's the biggest punishment? If you do something that harms the marriage, you have something so beautiful and you harm it. I sinned, I violated, I transgressed, I trespassed. The same thing is with a Jew. What is the reward of the mitzvah, the rabbis say, the rabbis and ethics of our fathers? The mitzvah itself. The fact that I strengthened my relationship, I connected with Hashem, that is the greatest reward. What is the biggest punishment for sin? The sin itself. Aveira comes to the word transgress. I trespassed. I did something to violate. I have something so special. Why would I violate it? But what about so, you don't know how special it is and you violate That's it? the problem. That's the problem. People don't know. It's ignorance. People were not exposed. That's why Hasidut today is not, is not optional. If you don't have Hasidut, if you don't have the soul of the Torah, if you don't have the soul of a mitzvah, if you don't understand that, a ma- that Judaism is a marriage, is a relationship between a Jew and God, that God is the husband and we are the wife, which is why God is always referred to in the Torah as He. Not because it was written by men, but because it's a marriage, it's a relationship. God is the husband and we are, we are the groom and Mount Sinai was the marriage, the chuppah. If, if you don't understand that, then, you can, then, then Judaism becomes very oppressive. And that's the most tragic thing in the world. The most tragic thing in the world is watching a billionaire walking around in tatters, homeless and starving to death. He has a billion dollars in the bank, but he, doesn't, he never learned how to make write a withdrawal slip. Or he has no idea that he's a billionaire. That's so, the bigger problem. That's the biggest tragedy. When you have a person who grew up orthodox, religious, whatever, but it's so joyless, it's so soulless, it's so... It's like such a burden, such a misery that the, the guy, he wouldn't want to put you in misery. <laughs> so now he's born in misery. And he does whatever he has to, and just the minimum. And he just, it's just so oppressive. And it's done out of fear, and done out of... That's the most tragic thing in the world. When you don't appreciate what you have. You don't, there's no joy, there's no love, there's no passion, there's no depth, there's no... 
it doesn't engage you, it doesn't involve you, that, that, that's the tragic, most tragic thing in the world. But ignorance is curable. I mean, we're talking here about ignorance. That's the good news. Welcome to Chabad. Chabad stands for education, education, education. Because you just have to re-educate. Most people who have no connection, it's with no fault of their own. Right. No one is blaming them. Maybe, not even maybe, but I'm sure they have much greater souls than those of us who were born into observant communities. Because maybe God knew if we were born in those communities, <laughs> we would never make it back. But those souls are very special, and even though get, they're there... I mean, but with all the work in the world, it's not a question you can't reach them. They don't even know where they are. Today we have the Internet. People hook up on the Internet mm-hmm. from places all over the world you would never expect. Mm-hmm. Because the Internet, Jew, a Jew could be lost somewhere in... in he doesn't have no affiliation. He doesn't want to step foot in the shul. He feels comfortable, it's quiet, it's alone, it's anonymous. And you'd be shocked and surprised by the thousands of Jews all over the world who are connecting through that. So it's just a matter of... The good news is, if, if 100 years ago, 90% of Jews were observant, and then in 100, 200 years ago, and in the 100 years, it, it flipped over. 100, 90% of Jews couldn't run away fast enough. The good news is that it, the, the, the reverse could also happen. The positive could also happen. Because the only reason they couldn't run away fast enough is because the ghetto walls came down and they didn't have enough knowledge, enough education. To, to really, they didn't really understand the Jewishness. They had a kindergarten understanding of their Jewishness. And here they were exposed to a, u- a university, a sophisticated, advanced understanding of philosophy, of life, of religion. But their own Yiddishkeit, they had a, literally a babyish understanding of Yiddishkeit. But, but today, what the Rebbe has done is, through the Chabad houses, he has made, communicated, the deepest depth, the crown jewels of Judaism. The Chabad houses is not watering down Judaism. On the contrary. It's taking the deepest depth, undiluted, crown jewels, the deepest stuff, and bringing it down to a level, communicating it to a level that everyone could relate to, and re-educating one Jew at a time in the whole Jewish community. Because it's there. You just have to, the dynamite is there, you just have to light the match. It's all there. It didn't go anywhere. The Jewish brain, the Jewish soul, it's all there. It's in the blood. You just have to reach. You just have to make that connection. It's there. So, so we have confidence. It's there. You don't have to convert anyone. You just have to, you have to bring a Jew back to a place he never really left. Just bring him back home where, where, you, where he always was deep down. It's all inside. It's all in there. It's just a matter of communication. Bringing it down but without diluting. That's the, that's the secret of Chabad. It's not, it's, yes, do one mitzvah. But it's not saying there's only one mitzvah. No. There are 630 mitzvahs. But start with one mitzvah. And this one mitzvah will lead you to two and inevitably will lead you to the whole thing. It's communicating in a way that's available, accessible, but without diluting. Communicating the whole essence, the whole beauty with integrity. Without compromising on truth or on the soul just to please. That's, that's the secret of Chabad. It's genuine. You're not diluting and you're not compromising and you're not giving them a half story. You're telling them the whole truth, but in a way that's palatable, in a way that people feel comfortable, it's at home, and they can start growing on their own and just rediscovering their own Yiddishkeit on their own pace. So, and every day it's getting stronger and stronger. And we're communicating more and more and more and more effectively and 
the message was going out. It's the same message. The Jew hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. The Torah hasn't changed. It's the same truth. The Jew is a Jew is a Jew. The, the message of Chabad, it's just, it resonates, right? The first message is there's no such thing as Reformed Jew. There's no such thing as an Orthodox Jew. There's no such thing as a Conservative Jew. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. What makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish soul. The difference between the Jew and the non-Jew is not just a question of behavior or attitudes or religion or meditation. It's a Jewish soul. We have a Jewish soul. That's what makes us Jewish. And every Jew has the same Jewish soul. The simplest Jew is just as connected as the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar. 100%. We have a Jewish soul. We have a piece of the divine essence. And the non-Jew knows it. We're the only ones who forget. The non-Jew sees it very clearly. They look at a Jew and they'll say... No one will ever say a Christian is a Christian is a Christian, a Muslim is a... But they'll say a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Because they see, they see beyond all these artificial labels. and They see the truth. They see an ashamah. They see a bigger picture than we do. 100%. Because, because, they, because they're objective. They're objective. They see the truth. You were suggesting that, that Hashem needs us, that, you know, that He begs and pleads us. That's empowering from our perspective, but we were just discussing earlier, the idea that you know, we, can't even, we might not even necessarily be able to refer to an attribute of Hashem because that, that might limit such an such a infinite being. Isn't this also kind of trivializing Hashem's authority? He needs us, really? I mean, we don't know why, but there is no reason, but we know that God wanted to be a king. He wanted to get married. And once he wanted to get married and be a king and have a relationship, the only way that could happen is if we willingly want to have a relationship with him. We willingly choose to do the right thing out of our freedom of choice. That's why he doesn't force us, he doesn't impose himself upon us, he doesn't overwhelm us with his presence, he hides, he, so to speak, removes himself. He wants us to make the mistakes, he wants us to learn, he wants us to grow, he wants us to be our choice. We have earned it, we have... We, and then, only then could he be king. Why he needed it, we don't know why he needed it. There's no reason why he needed it. You're right, God is perfect. What does he need? There's no one else besides God. So who is he having a relationship with anyway? But for whatever reason, God wanted to have a relationship. Once God wanted it, for whatever reason, then in order for that will to be fulfilled, we are the only ones who can make that will. So we, what we're doing is really real. Because we make God king. You can't, you can't be king over yourself. You can't marry yourself. No matter how much you love yourself, you could be God Almighty himself. You could be perfect. You can't marry yourself. You can love yourself to death, but you can't marry yourself. So whatever. But so we don't know why. The question is right. The question is a good question. Why does I'm God not, need I'm it? I'm not asking why. because I understand There is no why. We don't know why. There is no reason. In effect, doesn't it? Doesn't it no, but he wanted it. But God wanted it. No, because God is so undefined, he can, he can want that also. And he wanted that. He wanted to... He wanted to be a king. It's one of his royal attributes. He wanted to be a king. He wants to have that relationship. And we are the only ones who can, who can make him king. So in that sense, it, it is empowering to us. It does empower us. And it also gives us strength because God needs us. What we're doing matters. If you realize that what you're doing, the whole universe was created just for your choice. Every time we make a decision to do the right thing, to think the right thing, to say the right thing, speak the right thing, the whole universe was created just for that moment. The whole universe is riding on you. On each and every one of us. Can you imagine? God himself is hanging with, with, with bated breath. And looking and searching and begging and pleading. Please, do the right thing. I need you. Because if you don't do the right thing, I am not king. On the other hand, 
nothing that we do and nothing in creation ever changes God. God is much bigger than all of this, and this is part of God, and it doesn't affect him. But he has chosen, and he has chosen, and he has chosen this, and he wants this, and therefore he has invested his essence in this. In us. He married us. And he invested his essence in Torah and in mitzvot. And he invested his essence in the Jew and Torah and mitzvot. That's why the Jew, that's why Israel is the center of the universe. That's why the world is obsessed with Israel. Why, why should the world even care about Israel? You can't even find Israel on the map. Who cares? There aren't, you can hardly, there hardly find any Jews in this world. Only 12 million Jews. Why does the whole world care about Jews so much? Yeah, there are billions and billions of people that no no one cares about. A Jew sneezes in Israel and it's front page news in the world. Why is the world obsessed about Jews? Because they know that God invested his essence in the Jew. This is the essence. This is what it's all about. It's all about the Jew and Torah and mitzvah. This is the center of the universe. The heart of the universe. We're the only ones who forget it, but they know it. And they're not going to let us forget that we're the center of you. As much as we try to hide or run away, we just want to be normal, leave us alone, just accept us like equals, the, more, the, more, the worse it gets. The more they remind us, the more they remind us you're not like us. You're the center of the universe. Get your act together. Act like a Jew. Be like a Jew. And lead us out of this dark exile. Lessons in Tanya taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.